Hello, this is Yaro, and welcome to Vested Capital, episode number 23, featuring my guest, Kisan Patel, the CEO and founder of DealRoom, mascience.com, and a merger and acquisition specialist. Vested Capital is a podcast about how people make money and put their capital to work. I interview startup founders, angel investors, venture capitalists, crypto and stock traders, real estate investors, and leaders in technology. My guest today, Kisan, has uh, an interesting story because I've not really focused on any guests before who specialize in the M&A space, mergers and acquisitions, which is another way of sort of saying web uh, businesses being sold and acquired by other businesses or sometimes just being funded by private equity or banks. And in this interview, we definitely get a bit of a, a background into that world. Uh, Kisan had his own boutique merger and acquisition firm from uh, 2003 to 2012. It was called Transatlantic Investments and Advisory. They did about 34 sales for around $350 million. And I asked Kisan to kind of go through some of the basics of what merger and acquisition is. How did he start the firm? How did he you know, get his first deal? What did that look like? It was quite interesting. It was uh, around selling gas stations, you know, it's a rural town, so not exactly what you would expect. We also talk a bit more about the different layers to merger and acquisition, you know, all the way to hiring a broker to broker the sale of your, say, your website business, all the way up to the big M&A deals you probably hear about in the news when some multinational firm is acquiring another multinational firm and the big finance houses are involved with those deals. So that's kind of like the first half of this interview. And then we switch gears to his founding of Deal Room, which was or is his attempt to digitize the workflow of the merger and acquisition process. Now, I wasn't initially aware of what that meant, so I had to kind of ask Kisan to explain. So we'll hear how he started his company. It's 100% bootstrapped, very successful now, been running for 10 years. And it started with a simple idea of just taking that due diligence process and digitizing it so it's better controlled than, say, just opening up a spreadsheet or a Google Doc or something and, you know, writing information in that. But also uh, there was a layer of what he called like a to-do list and a communication platform because... If you've ever done due diligence before, you probably know this, there are follow-on questions, there's things that need to be explained, and he wanted to capture that entire process within DealRoom. Obviously, it's now it's grown to do much more of the process, and it's a successful company. We also talk about his creation of mascience.com, which I thought was really interesting, and he put this really well. He said, I realized, and I probably should have done this earlier, but I realized as a startup founder, you really need to build within your company a media business. And I thought that was a really profound way of putting this idea of you need content marketing no matter what your startup is about. I'll let Kisan explain to you, you know, why he decided to do that, how that helped the business really finally grow, what that looks like for them in terms of the kind of content they produce. And you can always go to mascience.com to check it out as well. But yes, I really like that way of talking about content marketing. It's true because even with my own company, Inbox Done, we really do have like a small media arm, which I run, I'm the manager of it within the company. Like we do uh, inbox management, email management for our clients, but there's this other part of the business where we're helping to spread the word by, for example, you know, sponsoring this podcast. I'm, I mentioned Inbox Done, so it's part of the content here. We have a copywriting team producing articles. We have social media sharing content. We're creating YouTube videos. So it is like a media arm within a startup. And I've noticed as I've been angel investing and getting more background information about the companies I invest in, all of them or almost all of them start doing content marketing, building their own media arm within their business as a way to grow and also stabilize growth, control it, because other methods are very hit and miss. Pay-per-click advertising can kind of maybe works one day, stops working next month. 
then you've got sort of sponsoring an event and it might be great when the event happens, but then it's over. So it can be a real roller coaster where with content, you start to, you know, be a part of the conversation online. You start showing up in search results and that's more consistent and dependable once you've built up all that content. And speaking of Inbox Done, so today's episode is brought to you by InboxDone.com, which is the email management and virtual executive assistant company that I co-founded with uh, my partner, Claire. We started that business four years ago now and have been servicing all kinds of different clients in different industries like uh, car sales, real estate, dentists, doctors, restaurant owners, online coaches, venture capitalists, angel investors, anyone who's dealing with too much email, having trouble managing their calendar, and needs a specialist who's just fantastic at written communication to step in and learn how to take over something as important and vital as your email. That's what we do. And in fact, we assign you two dedicated executive virtual assistants who are specially trained and hired to take over email, replying to messages, managing email, building processes, documentation, SOPs, all of that we do, plus the typical virtual executive assistant tasks that you might be thinking about, data entry, basic research, booking travel, we do that as well, but we really specialize on email and we're one of the only executive assistant companies that provide two people as a standard, so you have redundancy. So in case someone needs a holiday, maybe they're unwell, they have to take a month off, you're not suddenly left with this big gap in service. So we have that continuity of service with two staff members. And also that's two people who learn how to take over your business and your email. And you don't have to deal with that issue of turnover and the training process all over again. So that's really important to us and that's why we do it. If you need help with your email or you need an executive virtual assistant, head to inboxdone.com. All right, now let's dive into the interview with Kisan Patel. Hello, Kisan. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. So I had to hit record straight away because I'm trying to do this kind of pre-interview questions and I feel like I need to record everything you're saying for the listeners because I don't know a lot about the space you've been operating in for a long time, the mergers and acquisition space. So I can look at your LinkedIn and say you are the CEO and founder of MA Science and also Deal Room, which is like a SaaS in the M&A space. So definitely want to talk about those two things. But maybe as an overview, you know, what, what has been your life work? What are you, what are you famous for? Yeah, happy to kick that off. I started with a career in M&A advisory, working mainly with private entities, buy side, sell side, with a focus in hospitality, a lot of hotel chains, and then also kind of small financial institutions was the other area of focus of mine. And pretty typical founder story. We work in the industry long enough, you're familiar with the pain points and challenges and you start seeing emerging trends in the tech sector and start getting ideas, which I noticed software engineers would use these really cool project management tools to manage developing software and thought, why not for M&A? And uh, that led to starting a company called DealRoom in 2012 that was project management for M&A. And that, that's evolved into a full-on lifecycle management product. And we'll get a little bit into that. Then I was really fortunate again, where about little over five years ago, a friend in marketing was like, hey man, you should do a podcast. And I was like, what the hell is a podcast? And he, he's like, don't worry about it. It's the next big thing. You just got to do one. And back then there was only about four or five podcasts covering M&A. Today there's over 50 and we've done really well. We had a lot of fun hosting of the podcasts we have and we repurposed a lot of that content. And today I've published over 350 pieces of content, blog posts, eBooks, just published our second book, working on a third one. And that evolved during COVID into doing virtual events where we run these summits about three to four times a year and they're fun. We then started an online school for M&A. So we've sort of combined not only the technology component, but also the, the education and best practice, which is probably the, the underpinning problem in our industry is that it lacks standardization around those best practices. If you look at all these companies, they have their own way of thinking and, and approaching M&A. So with the, the idea of the platform uh, or using a podcast as a platform was, can we do a series of quantitative interviews and identify what are the trends, patterns, and the proven techniques that we can find in the industry and start documenting it, and make it into resources that other practitioners can leverage? Okay, so I definitely need to 
demystify some of this. And like we talked about off air, it's helpful that I've not spent really much time in the M&A world. I can think really to what is my exposure and probably a lot of the listeners' exposure is you see you know, a news piece like I'm thinking right now, the most recent one was there's like the the rail company. I, can't I think it's the Kansas City Rail or something is being acquired by one of the Canadian rail companies. And, you know, it's, a, it's an acquisition of one big train company of another train company. And as a, a, a normal person, you hear that, you think, okay, it's they're going to combine forces and become one big company. One is probably bigger than the other. And they're just going to have a larger customer base service more of the country. And that to me, I understand sort of the purpose, but I feel like behind the scenes, there's so much more going on. Before you answer that question, though, I actually would like to step back in time because as far as I know, and maybe this was or was not the case for you, I don't remember any kid when, you know, mom and dad asked them, what do you want to do when you grow up? And they say, I want to be an M&A. I want to be in mergers and acquisitions. So how did you even get exposed? Like, what was the, what did you do growing up initially? You know, my dad would say otherwise. He said, I remember when you're 10 years old and you would always draw these pictures of cars and you would make it into a little book. And here's these cars with like lasers and rocket boosters. And you would always put prices in the millions and billions. And uh, so I, I don't know. I was always drawn in by big numbers. And I think running a practice was great. But when you run a boutique practice, you run into that glass ceiling where. These what does large- that mean, though? When you say running a practice, what does that actually mean? Advising. You're advising organizations on their M&A activity, whether they're buying or selling. And it's, it's, a, it's a fun business. It, the challenge I had with it was the two part. One is you get a chance at the $100 million transaction and you wouldn't get it. It'd always go to a brand name firm. And then the other thing was you're living deal by deal. Like you really live deal by deal. That first year we had the recession back in 06, 07, took a big hit. That was tough. That was nerve wracking. And you're, hey, do I stay on path and hope that it gets better next year? Do I pivot and try something else and different? And that's what ultimately what I did, started shifting towards the technology space. Is this transatlantic investments and advisory? Is that your initial M&A firm? That was the first practice I ran for almost 10 years. Okay. So let me ask the basic questions around that, which would be that time of your life as well. So the purpose of your company at the time, there'd be one company thinking about acquiring another. And essentially, they need consultation on the nuts and bolts of how to do that. The financing, the combination of staff, leadership, is that... And then you come in with the expertise to advise them on how to structure that, how to get financing. Is that kind of roughly speaking it? Yeah. If you, if you look at a typical private company, when you look at the fundraising part of it, when you look at that when they, if they sell and if they acquire other businesses, they're pretty infrequent events that happen. They don't really develop this expertise in those areas. They're really focused on the core business that they have. So as an advisor, you're able to assist and bring this experience and expertise in those areas. I'd say most of M&A is focused on sell side. Sell side tends to be the more lucrative part. So you get the traditional investment banking model of to kind of take a company run an auction process, get the highest price for it and sell the business. I personally love doing the buy side work. I had so much fun out going out hunting for deals. That part I really thrived off of, but in the money's on the sell side. Why is that? Just because you're taking a cut of the final sale price of the business? It is. You get a cut of the business. If you have something for sale, it's almost like inevitably it's going to sell at some point in time. Somebody's going to buy it. It may take a month. It may take a year. Somebody will eventually buy it and you'll get your fees on it. On the buy side, you could you need to be careful about who you're working with. You could be working with a buyer that may seem like a serious buyer, but they may never buy anything. They may keep pass, 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 and a lot of frustration. And uh, If you do get a, a retainer on the buy side, it's usually not much. Either way, on buy or sell side. But on the sell side, you'll, you'll typically get your deal done. So uh, forgive me for being really basic here, but the day you decided to launch Transatlantic Investments and Advisory, how does that even happen? Like, do you have deals in the pipeline because you know certain people who want to sell their company? Like, what is the trigger point? And then, like, why do you even believe, you know, you can enter? Because I feel like, like you said before, there's a lot of big fish in M&A and like, 
why choose someone who's just come along and saying, I could sell your company versus go to a big established player? And is that more to do with the size of the company too? Like small companies don't qualify for the bigger players. So they need to look for more boutique um, firms. I'm kind of guessing here, but is that is that right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I came from a unique spot. I didn't follow a traditional path where you often would get into investment banking, start as a, an analyst and work your way up the ranks. Um, I came from a real estate background where I essentially failed at selling houses and found my way into this tiny little M&A advisory shop that somehow figured out how to generate a lot of inbound interest. And they had primarily various Indians that were responding to these these uh, posts that they put online. And they hired me as this young Indian kid to go deal with these Indian prospects and go sell them some small businesses. And I, I did. I started doing it and had tra- I had fun because I liked, I liked P&Ls. I liked the numbers. I liked building a story around, here's an opportunity. Here's how we can reduce expenses. Here's how we can grow revenues. And uh, I did well doing it but realized the firm itself had some faults where they didn't have a clear strategy in there where they're trying to build their expertise in. And that's where I decided a year after into it to start a practice with a focus in specific verticals. And that led to starting our, our own firm. And it's, it's tough. It's definitely hard to get out there and, and start something new. So never forget it. I can imagine I think the the other part too, when you think about the the size of the firm and how we got the traction, there was a little bit of understanding the model from experience at a firm, but ultimately came down to grit. I think just being really young, I was in my early twenties, not being afraid to lose anything, knock on doors, and show people how willing I was to take chance, to put in the best effort I can, be extremely responsive, and it worked. It got folks to say, "All right, I'll give you give you a shot here," and ended up building off of it and made some success happen. Can you share like your first ever deal? Like what, who, what was the company? I don't know if you're allowed to disclose that and how, what, what did you? I know it's, you know, so long ago and I'm friends with the, the guy now. So, you know, I, I started this practice in downtown Chicago and I, I remember <laughs> renting this office and the landlord didn't even know what to do with me because, or the, the representative, cause I'm asking for a month to month lease. And I I'm like, I just want to try this out see what happens. And, I ended up talking to the owner of the property, worked out a deal, got this little office going and ran out of capital. I, I thought, hey, I had 10 grand, was enough working capital. I was fortunate enough, my dad lent me 30K just to, to keep things going. And uh, I thought I was I was done because he's like, that's all, I'm not going to lend you any more money. I don't really believe in what you're doing here. I got so lucky that I came across a 363 asset sale of a company called More Oil out of Indiana. And they had a small portfolio of little gas stations, five or six of them that they were liquidating through a bank process. And I got to represent these assets and go through and sell them. And the first one I remember selling was a tiny little, and I, I remember this deal was such a good deal that I, I kept running or trying to ask family members. A lot of the family members are in these different types of retail businesses and nobody wanted to go out there. Nobody, they're like, oh, it's too far, too far away from Chicago. And ended up finding this guy online who, um, that's all he did. He'd buy a business, turn it around and flip it, sell it, go travel somewhere else, do the same thing. And uh, that's uh, ended up selling it to him for, I remember the business that we had a net 210,000. I sold it to him for 240,000. And then three months later, I sold the same business again for 550,000. So it was, I mean, I'm watching this guy make about $300,000 in three months. And I, you know, we, we got decent fees to start building out the the practice and, and pick things up from there. But do you, do you mind sharing what the fee is for like a deal like that? Is it enough to survive a year, a month? Uh... You know, the, the small deals, and we talked a little bit about the size fit with firms, these small deals, it, it, it really varies. You can do up to 10% on them. You know, I gave you like 240, I charged 30,000, then I sold again for 550 and kept 50K. So those small deals, you, you can get up to, to 10%. And I think when you get over a million, it starts tapering down. They'll they'll use these different models like the Lehman formula or whatever you negotiate if you're a savvy advisor. I think though, when you do look at the size of deals, there is a bit of a nature of fit to it. You don't want to be you don't want to be a mid-sized company going to Goldman Sachs because you're you're just not gonna get the attention that you would with 
a mid-level bank that's so there there is some some truth to right sizing when you are working with these different uh, be it like a boutique M&A shop or an investment bank i think that that's important to consider i think a lot of people will get overly drawn into the names but you start going to the city the the jpms and they they may bank you because a lot of them are broadening up and creating a middle market focus but um i, I would really Pay attention to the team you're working with and make sure that's an area that they're going to prioritize uh, for them. And it's not something that's left up to the side and who knows what happens. Do you mind just closing the loop? Because this really helps explain the, the full process. So if you're getting 10% to sell this small gas station you know, out in a smaller area and then sell it again when the, the, the new owner wants to sell it, what do you actually do for that 10%? Like what is the, you bring to the table that. Yeah. Yeah. Good thing is, is marketing. Uh, one part, I think a lot of people don't realize when you go sell your business, there's a ton of prep involved. And especially if you're going out to market, you may be dealing with two types, unsophisticated and sophisticated buyers. Sophisticated buyers are ones that may be the right buyers that they're the ones that are going to pay the best price. And you need to be really prepared because they're going to do a very formal diligence process and they're going to have expectations to see things. They want to see clean books. They want to really be able to have clear answers on the things that they look for when they identify risk in their deals. And the better you clean your house and have it ready to go, but smoother and better the process is going to go. Otherwise, you're going to keep opening up these little red flags that are going to require clarification and it's going to slow down your process and just make it uh, frustrating and more headaches than you need. So really important to have somebody that can help you prepare your business for that process. And then going through the marketing phase, if you have somebody that's worked in the industry for selling hotels, and that was one I worked in, and understand who are the key players, given the size of the deal, I know I can make a quick list of here's my top 10 that I would go to. And then I'll blow that out and maybe find an additional 40 to make it 50 and say, okay, I'm going to run a very comprehensive process. Um, these are the people I would go out to. And with those kind of assets too, you can be a little more public and maybe run a marketing process that that's pretty broad. And then you'll spend the time to filter out those potential buyers and qualify them. And then once you go through that process and come to some terms and have an LOI signed, then a formal diligence process happens or conformatory diligence and that that gets pretty intensive and and when you think about the advisor's role there's one helping to filter the buyers helping the client understand the differences between the buyer it may not just strictly be go with the highest price you know nowadays especially sellers are very invested with the organization they built and they want to see it continue and they want to see the team be in a good place that they want to make sure that things will be aligned for them as well and that might not be the highest price. You know, you may have a company that the culture is aligned better and there, there's going to be a better future. Or they're planning to preserve the product where the other may, hey, we're going to just destroy this and get rid of a competitor. You know, there's different views and understanding what that post-close, what the strategies of the buyer is an important factor. And that's something with an advisor can help you with some of the considerations. And then the diligence, I think, is really important because that process is so intensive. And if you can imagine getting hundreds of questions and a lot of follow-up questions, so you get a bunch of requests for documentation, which if you did your housekeeping, it won't be as bad as it could be. And then the, you'll get additional follow-up questions. Like, hey, maybe you had this lawsuit five years ago. Like, we want to know there's no little things that are going to creep back from that. Let, let's have some clarification questions. That advisor will help with that because otherwise that diligence process ends up becoming so distracting for your management team that it could potentially affect the performance of the business while you're transacting, which would be a bad thing. You don't want to be doing a deal and all of a sudden you missed your quarterly goals or expectations and then it raises more concerns with that buyer. So helping to minimize the distractions so the management team can stay focused on operating the business is another key component that a, a, a seller provides or advisor provides as value. Okay, that's interesting. It, I, you're making me think back a previous guest on my show, um, Baird Hall. He sold a company called Wave, 
And he talked about how they made the mistake, him and his co-founders, of basically selling it themselves and, and realizing, oh my God, there's just so many documents they had to get created and signed, you know, the legal processing. And they were like, we should have used a broker. So he used that term, like a broker to broker the or a selling agent. And it's funny, like M&A, it sounds more like this Wall Street term that you hear about, you know, in online and in finance papers and websites and so on, where I grew up in this world of, you know, you sell a website, it's not selling a business, it's simpler transactions. So I like that they're really the same thing, ultimately, just at bigger scales. I'd love to talk about that in terms of the almost 10 years you were running your own practice. Maybe two questions, total deal volume. And is there like, you remember your your biggest deal and, and what, what that was like? We had a lot of missed on the bigger deals. I feel like we had a handful of the 100 million plus opportunities and, and really missed them all. The bigger deals that we did were actually finance projects that we were refinancing hotel assets in the 50, 60 million dollar range. Those are probably the bigger ones. I think you had a good point in the terminology too. When you hear broker, I think of business brokers as the mom and pop shops. If you think of where I started with those little convenience stores, gas station type of deals, and then when you start moving past 10 million, now you fall in this M&A advisory category, which is typically still unlicensed. You're, you know, maybe you got registered, you know, in Illinois, you register with the state and, and do, do something there. But until you get to a level as an investment bank, you're registered with FINRA. So I, I would say those might be the, the buckets to distinguish that, hey, if it's a really small transaction, there's a whole pool of business brokers out there. But then you move into the M and A advisory when you start getting to this this mid market, you know that that ten to two hundred million, and above two hundred million, you're you're probably working with a licensed investment bank. Okay, that's really interesting, useful. All right, so that example of like your biggest deal, which is more of a refinance, are you just going to private equity where a company is buying a part of the company to help them finance? Like, what does a refinance actually look like? We were doing it through large banks where Credit Suisse was a big bank I would work with to run those kind of deals with, and then local banks as well. So that, yeah, that was an interesting thing I found out was working with the hotel assets, they fall kind of hybrid between business and real estate asset. So it's, um, and there's pretty lucrative just going through and refinancing them, picking up like half a point just for putting those deals together. Uh, and then the, if you were working with real estate developers, then you can do a lot of things. I think we did a hotel deal where we did the acquisition for about 17, 18 million. Then you pull construction loans out with that uh, and sort of package the, the finance with it as well. Um, so yeah, and then turn around and sell it a year later. Yeah, because that starts the relationship, right? You help them with the financing and then when it's time to sell, they come come back to you as well or, or time to buy. Okay, I'd love to maybe move your story forward, Kisan. So you, like you said, it was a bit of a, that kind of business model where it's, you're always looking for a deal. So it maybe doesn't feel super comfortable in terms of stability. And like, and then you mentioned there was like the GFC, which really impacted things for you. What led you to transitioning or, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, did you literally quit or leave or sell your own firm and start something completely new or, or did you kind of start it in parallel, like a side hustle? SAS while you're still running your own firm? Yeah, or? it was, I winded it down slowly in during the recession where I had us, I think at our peak, we had about five people. This is a really small firm. We did a good job though. People always thought we were a much bigger firm than we actually were. It just it did, we're very efficient, handled a good volume of transactions. And then just winded, winded it down, winded down the office and basically operated as a sole practitioner during the recession because there really wasn't deals going on. Probably gotten in, involved with a few liquidations that were a result of the recession. And I started dabbling around in the tech at the same time. Started getting involved with a, a Mark Tech startup that didn't ultimately pan out. But it, it led me to understand this whole ecosystem of the software space and the tools that these engineers use. Uh, then started the company Deal Room in 2012, but that was tough. That was a lot of, like, a lot of lessons learned the hard way. And I think a lot of people get startup ideas. Yaro, you you know this space as well, and you I, you probably same with me. You get the phone call. Here's someone's friend that wants to do a startup, and I think I got one this weekend actually. And you're trying to be as nice as possible, tell them how brutally hard it actually is, and that like, you know think of a restaurant like. 
restaurant, you know, you, you got to know how to make a great product. And you got to have a lot of certain things that go right, where you got to have a good location, you got to have a good, a good structure, property, uh, good ambiance, great menus, structured, good cooks, things to make a good meal. So you got like 10 things that really got to go right. But and the thing is, like with, the, with that kind of business, it's really visible. Like you can see pretty clear what's going good and what's going not. Tech, it's the same in terms of having things go right. You, you got to pay attention to these pieces, but a lot of them you can't really see. So you're, you're very much dependent on if you're not a technical founder and you're relying on developers to write you know, good code and functioning code and things like that. So it's a really different dynamic and there's a lot more pieces involved with it. I don't know. It's And that's the thing. I think ultimately you got to realize there's a competency of building a great product at the end of the day that you need to make your goal. You can make crappy software and nobody's going to buy it, or you can make great software. Do you understand that competency it takes to actually build great software? That's the one thing I didn't realize. I, I sort of assumed like a consulting practice. You can kind of get it going and, and iterate on it and figure out these pieces as you go. Software is a little different. It's just, you, so there was a lot of... Um, Hard lessons learned that I, I think, looking back at it, it's, it seems obvious now, but that, that was definitely some struggles in the beginning. Well, let me t- take us through it. So I'd love to know, you have this idea, you're, you're winding down your actual boutique firm, uh, deal flow is not so good, GFC is happening, but then you're also thinking, I now have spent a decade in this space, I see the need for a software solution to something that goes on within M&A, I need to go hire a developer to, vil- to build an MB- MVP. Is that kind of your thinking at the time? Yes. You have an idea. You want to hire developers. I think there's a couple things. One, you start getting obsessed with wanting to build things right the first time. And the other thing, the feature creep, you have this idea and you start thinking about like all these possible things that your user would possibly want. And you end up with this giant outline of functionality that, uh, so it's, it, you sort of naturally go the opposite of an MVP and building a, a prototype to just to validate your business model. Was, so I think one is sorry. I was just going to ask what with an example. What was your initial idea? Like, what was your your? I had a vision for end to end management of M and A. That was what and, does and that I mean? Ended up starting with well, if you look at a deal, you go through the phases of, and I got to flip it around because back then we were very focused on sell side. Today we're very focused on buy side. Uh, So then it's like, hey, you got to go through the steps to prepare a company, take it out to market, find potential buyers for it, manage a diligence process, and then give them a handoff of all that information so they can run with it and go through their integration process. That was the early thinking in what we wanted to build. And there's just a lot. There's a lot. There was a whole marketplace model to connect buyers and sellers. That's where we thought, hey, let's start off with the beginning part and start building the environment to connect buyers and sellers. But I think that the thing is you don't realize, the thing we didn't realize was there are a lot of different problems that we're trying to solve all at once. And you need to solve one thing at a time and solve it really, really well and validate you solve it well, then figure out how you can scale that solution out to others, then look at solving the next problem. And, and we, when we started it too, there was a lot of assumptions that we had from our prior experience that we did these smaller transactions that we thought would apply well to the middle market. That was a larger size transactions that weren't true. There were assumptions that were dead wrong. And we paid for it and we started the launches product, started marketing it as a marketplace, acquired about 1300 different users and 200 deals listed and realized we'd built a sophisticated dumpster for deals because they were all just stuff that nobody in the right mind would invest in. Are you talking kind of like a, a Flippa? I don't know if you know Flippa, the online marketplace for websites. It was sort of like, like that. Yeah, but we didn't have a, a digital focus. It was all kinds of businesses. Uh, I think what, where that's was the realization that we need to go back to the drawing board. I was fortunate enough to have a good friend to walk me through and elaborate. Hey, think of the lean startup model. Like really focus on the problem you're solving. Go through a series of these customer development interviews. Validate the problem you're solving then validate the solution you're developing. And we did that. We just took a step back. 
started doing, I think we did, our goal is to do about 40 of these interviews to really understand different cohorts of potential customers and what their pain points are and validate them. There's both like the science and art to it because a lot of people tell you what you want to hear and can you design your, and you, you want to hear what you want to hear too. So can you design your questions to be as unbiased as possible and be very objective when you conduct that, that type of interview? Then we did these interviews and realized that it's not finding the, the opportunities that people have a problem with is the management side. We really started focusing on management, modeled out solutions. I know people do wireframes, but I don't feel like the general public doesn't understand wireframes really well. So I, I, I always encourage go on Upwork or whatever platform and either find somebody overseas or find a student, have them do some basic mock-ups so you can present it and do those same kind of interviews on the solution, validate the solution. What I later learned is while you're validating the solution, you should also validate your go-to-market. Start understanding where are these channels, how are they going to buy your product and what's that going to look like? Because again, we fell back on assumptions and went to market the same way our competitors did, which is a terrible thing to do. That was not a good idea at all. They have a totally different product, different business model that justified them doing the way, sold, selling the way they did with uh, field reps and unlimited expense cards and things of that sort. Could you, could you make that tangible? So when you took a step back, you started doing both problem research and go-to-market research. What did you then identify as the problem and how did you go to market with that, that first version that I feel like you're getting to the point where you've, you actually got something that got some traction? Yeah, the, the first big thing we really lasered in on was the diligence process, that when buyers and sellers go back and forth, the buyer has a lot of documents they need to review, and they have a lot of follow-up clarification questions that come after. In the current state, the customers were, or the customers in this case, were using Excel trackers. They use an Excel sheet and build a tracker to manage all this request for information and, and questions. And it got tedious quickly because you're batching everything. It could, this could be hundreds, over a thousand items, depending on the deal size. Then you have follow-up questions that go on the same tracker. And now you're having a discussion on an Excel sheet that's not very clean at all. I found it very to be a problematic pain point for these customers. That's where we really focused on for a solution. And the idea was, hey, we see these project management tools the software engineers use. Why don't we do something like that? Why don't we take this data security platform, the virtual data room that was commonly used in the industry to exchange the documents? And the difference between a data room and your typical Dropbox, some additional security features, they'll have automated watermarking. So your documents can be watermarked. If somebody sends it out to the wrong person, you know who leaked the document out. It'll have their login, time they accessed it and everything. They'll also, you can put very, very granular permissions in the data room environment. So maybe I want to lock everything down so it's view only, but there's this Excel model that I'm going to give you access to download and tinker with offline. So we have very granular permissions. And then audit trails, very detailed audit trail on everything that's been touched in, in the whole uh, data room. So the idea is that that was standard in the industry. People always use these data rooms. Why don't we just put the to-do list on top of the data room to manage all that back and forth? And now you can do it in a real-time environment, just like the project management tools, and essentially bring workflow to the industry. And that uh, that was the first first thing we did. But it was still tough. I think with the nature of the industry and the deals that we're doing, people don't trust the new new kids on the block with a, a solution. They're like, hey, we're doing a $100 million deal here. Why, why should we use this brand new product nobody's ever heard of? What will our client think? I think bankers tend to be conservative. It was really, really tough. A lot of brute force knocking on doors, hitting people on on uh, LinkedIn, just constantly knock, knock, knock. I was fortunate I had a bank, Felix, Felix Donichu from Elmcore Group, just gave me a shot, said, hey, I got a client. They're going to go on a Toronto exchange, IPO work. Why don't you, you know, let me get you this deal, help you get going. I did. And then from there, it picked up. We started working with Allstate and some other companies and, and just things started picking up. I think there, that part was, it was, it was tough too. Cause when we start, once we started getting the live deals, then you realize that, Hey, you built this product, but it's not really built for scale. So, and that's the thing, you know, we were going through all these iterations with the prototype mindset, but now we had to shift to how do we rebuild the product for scale? Uh, what was it a venture backed company? Like was, did you get funding for deal room or was it 
Bootstrapped. 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 Okay, so you're pouring in all your your previous profit from your boutique agency into the hope of a SaaS software program taking off, basically, that that sort of hardcore entrepreneur mentality. It was was hard. It was really tough doing it that way. Uh, I think at the time, we originally looked at raising some capital, but Chicago wasn't a super, it's not like a Bay Area where people take bets and take chances on you. They want to see a significant amount of traction. So the the only term sheet we got offered was terrible. We're like, well, I might as well just keep investing more money into it. Take us forward with the the deal room story. It's, it's ten years later. You're still like uh, running the company, I believe. If I'm CEO and founder, according to LinkedIn, still up and running. So what was the like process of scaling it? And it sounds like the initial door knocking led to your first client, which means you've got social proof to help get the second client. And I can imagine maybe word of mouth starts to kick in and that starts spreading the word too. But like, at what point did you feel, okay, we're okay now. This is a a functioning, profitable business. Yeah. I feel like everything you think would be a driver to drive it forward. Like what you mentioned didn't happen. (laughs) Like word of mouth wasn't the thing. And now it happens when you, you hit a significant scale, but I wouldn't bet on that. I think we, we thought that there was going to be some inherent virality with the product because when you host a project room, you'll end up inviting 100 plus users into that environment. We assume that, hey, if these users come in, then they're in turn going to get a good experience and want to use the tool for one of their other projects. It happens, but it didn't happen like the way we thought it would. That wasn't a natural growth through that channel. We well, One big difference is we realized the banks weren't our early adopters. They were spending all this time, energy trying to sell them, but the corporates were actually our early adopters. They were much easier to sell to. They were incentivized to create value and improve what they were doing, drive efficiency, where banks often weren't. There was a big disconnect between the leadership and the folks that actually used our product and the folks that used our product, they didn't care about improving the process. They were there in for a short ride. They know at the end of the year, they're going to quit and go work on the buy side. So uh, that way they don't care. They're just going to do it the way they do and get it done and get out. And then plus the competitors were buying them all kinds of treats. They're taking them out, buying them ball game tickets and all these perks. So you're competing with that. And at the end of the day, that, that's what won the hearts of these junior bankers. When we work with the corporates, they're sophisticated. They're all about creating value and demonstrating that to the seniors that that's what they're doing and, and framing themselves to get promoted. And to align yourself with that, that's, that's a good thing. So the, you know, we kept going along pretty reasonable pace. I, I think one other big challenge we came across was your distribution model. I, I feel like you go through this whole heartache and struggles of building a product getting market fit, then realizing like you need to rebuild everything. And at that time we had to rebuild our, our tech team to build for scale. And I thought, okay, now we're, now we just got to sell the thing and realize that that's actually harder than building the product and all that perspiration you just went through. You got to do double down on it. And we started hiring sales reps. We didn't have a marketing function. They struggled, ended up only one of them survived. She's heading our client success team now, Julia, but we ended up making some false start there. That was expensive. Then we shifted focus, built the marketing function, which I think that going back, I would definitely do that. In fact, Yaro, if I were to start a tech company today, I would make clearly part of the strategy is to build a media company within the tech company because that's what's created our all our tailwind today is when we started podcasting, expanding, creating all these series of contents, collaborating with subject matter experts, really building it, that that's what really helped a lot. But um, so we build a marketing function. We've been doing that the last four years. That's made a huge difference. We've got tons of inbound leads. Sales reps love inbound leads. And then when they reach out, the people have heard of us more often than not. We've got tons of collateral, tons of resources, events to invite them to, all these things that marketing supports. And, and the, those efforts are, everything's becoming more digital. So the interactions you get are, tend to be more through the marketing channels first than the, the sales channel. I love the way you put that, uh, build a, a media company within your startup. I call it content marketing. I come from a, a blogging and a podcasting background. So it's natural for me to see content and media as the way to reach people, especially at, at low costs and 
I mean, I, I say low cost as a cost to create the content, but then ideally it sits out there and, and keeps bringing in value. And even my own company right now, uh, I run a, an email management executive assistant company called Inbox Done. And our main marketing channel is, yeah, it's a, a kind of like an in-house media company. We've got copywriters. I'm somewhat doing it right now, being on podcasts. Uh, I even talk about my company as a sponsor for this show. So it's all kind of interrelated. Take me back to the the decision you made. So you said it was about four years ago, you realized you needed to start producing support, education and, and content. How did you start that? We just needed marketing. marketing. <laughs> we didn't have marketing. Like we needed marketing. I did the, the, a lot of the fabled mistakes. I hired the hotshot CMO with the Apple Motorola background and was a failed hire. Then I ended up bringing somebody mid-level, about five years of experience coming out of an agency was able to participate as an individual contributor, started creating social media. I just kind of sat back like, okay, let's see what that does. And then she started creating a blog and getting that going and then started building out some contract writers. And now she runs a function, whole function. We got more than 10 people in marketing alone for a company that's just passing 30 headcount. Nice. Okay. So did you notice an impact? I know content social in particular is not known for an instant result. So how did it sort of play out? Like year one was not so good or? Oh, it, it, you know, the, it was interesting because it was very much an SEO first approach, which isn't common. And and that was partly because of the, the budget. You know, we didn't have venture money where you typically would spend for a lot of paid ads initially to try to validate and prove your model quick as you can. And then you build out the SEO once you have that dialed in. And we just played long on SEO, which Looking back at it, it was probably a really good decision because now we we do extremely well there. Leads, boy, back then we didn't we'd have a thousand visits to the month, a website a month, and maybe we got one lead a month. Now I we get a lot. I think uh, we captured like nine thousand contacts just this last quarter. Yeah, and then I don't. We got a lot of we got a lot of trials coming in, demo requests, well into the hundreds. So there, yeah, there there is a lot lot to 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 be said of the value that's created with the marketing function so so what are you doing with this content are you teaching people the ins and outs of m a yeah uh, it's all educational i if we step back when we think about our journey working with banks starting working with corporates and spending the time with that same model of solution selling like let me understand your pain points let me introduce a solution but and underpin it with a good business case on why the solution is going to create value. We quickly realized all these companies, it wasn't the same story we can bring to one another. They all had a unique way of looking at M&A and approaching M&A. And the, and the bigger problem in the industry was the industry itself. It operated in a silo and lacked standardization and best practices. And that was part of the idea with doing a podcast was can we use it as a platform to enable practitioners to share their lessons learned and allow us to identify what are some of these proven techniques that we can then capture, document, and share with the industry. And that that's what's able to really help us. So I, I think podcasting and these tools out there is good, but if you can build it with a mission, and that, that was our goal, was to enable practitioners to share listen, lessons learned, um, but now it's, it's really evolved to providing the industry with these educational resources um, that's based off of evidence. Mm-hmm. Nice. So you use a bit of research, some data, and it sounds like you're slicing it up for the different sort of stories in the head of your potential clients as well. So like niche within niche marketing. Is the best place to check all that out is just go to dealroom.co and look at your content or is it? So we're at dealroom.net. There's actually a dealroom.co, which we're good we're good friends with them. They're a European-based company that does data for startups. And they they I mean, they've probably grown beyond that. But they're Amsterdam-based company. We're our main product line is dealroom.net. Okay. Here I am doing all this crunch-based research on your European counterpart. Then, so <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're, it happens all the time. But we mascience.com, so MA science. That's becoming our umbrella brand. It's it's interesting. I, I wish we tied it together earlier. So now we operate both brands. But if you look at mascience.com, you'll see we have several product lines all within that that line. And then the podcast obviously drives a good amount of traffic to it. Both of them have t- tons of educational yeah, and, content. Yeah, and maybe you can help help us connect the dots here too. So how would this work? I'm a, a founder of a company. I'm thinking of selling it. I need, like I, I Google diligence process for selling my $10 million company. 
your one of your M&A science articles comes up. I learn about what information I need. And then I also learn about DealRoom as a platform to manage that diligence uh, workflow. Is that kind of right? Have I just described a typical maybe discovery process? I would say so. Uh, on the sell side, it's pretty, it is straightforward. There are a lot of companies that are represented. So there are advisors that would tend to engage with us and saying, hey, I got a client I'm working with to sell their business. And they would activate our service and help manage it. A lot of our content's focused because we, we do have a focus today with corporate M&A. And corporates will sell businesses, but more often than not, they're acquiring businesses. When you acquire a business, there's the whole process of going through sourcing deals that align with your strategy and doing the diligence from the buy side. But the integration part is really complex. If you think about the big problem underpinning, M the biggest problem with M&A today is the process itself that we're still driven off of this 20-year-old finance-focused M&A approach. And it doesn't work. It, you end up with a bunch of pissed-off people that quit and take away a bunch of value at the end of the deal. And you've seen it before. You've seen an acquisition go bad, change was too abrupt, and it dis dismantled the business, created too much disruption. It, when we look at that process, when we acquire a business, the integration process is the largest magnitude of change management an organization could possibly go through. You're peeling back an organization in the years and years that's created their process, processes layer by layer and reattaching it to another organization. So trying to do that without pissing people off is uh, extremely difficult. And that, that's where today we talk a lot about building a people-focused M&A process and really keeping them engaged, keeping the leadership from that target company in the loop about what the strategy is for the deal. What does this integration go to look like? In fact, we doing all this diligence on you. How about you do some diligence on us and understand what our organization looks like how you're going to fit in and be integrated into this organization and what that's going to look like and be part of that journey so we can really work together on this and be aligned around the goals and what the outcomes are going to be versus keeping you in the dark and you're hit up, hit with these surprises and changes and getting the frustration, the, the FUD factor, and ultimately leaving to disband the company. So yeah, there's a long ways to go, but that's the, the big thing we're really, really focused on is improving the integration process. So there's a better people experience. The overall transaction is better, smoother, more efficient. People are happier. Value gets realized a lot faster. Okay. So I, I'm curious now, Kisan, the, the day in the life, you would have previously been this dealmaker guy, right? Running around looking for the buyer or the seller and, and doing all that diligence and relationship building. And, and then you became a, a SaaS startup founder, completely different role, really. I mean, even if it is in the topic that you you know about, you were trying to digitize uh, a workflow process that you used to do probably very manually. And today, it sounds like you're almost you're in charge of a SaaS company, but you're also in charge of a media company. What, what is a day in the life like? What do you work on personally for, for you know the whole organization? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, the thing that I really, really love about being SaaS is I never get bored. I think with with, with M&A, you, you tend to stay focused in certain verticals and, and go deep in there. And I, I loved meeting people, the conversations. But when you're building a company and the learning never ends, you, know, you start off with a big focus on the technology, keeping up with it, building a team around it. Then the marketing function, understand marketing never ends. There's so many things you can do. But and it's fun. You can get very creative in that that part of the business. Uh, now we're very much focused on building out the sales function and creating and understanding, hey, the bigger companies that we work with, the bigger problems they have, uh, which is a better opportunity for us to be able to solve big problems for large organizations that the outcome ends up being better uh, revenues from that. So now, now we're starting to build an enterprise sales team. So I, I think that's the the big thing is the learning never ends. It sounds like you are doing a lot of hiring. Are you, is that your day-to-day, -day, just hiring and, and team team management? Or I was going to say, the, in terms of the day-to-day, -day, it bounces around. There's still, I'm doing a lot of podcasts for our stuff, working to support the sales team when they need help. I think the hiring is a big one and it, it does fluctuate. We sort of go through cycles. Like we'll tend not to hire towards the end of the year and early of the year because it's either slow or then very competitive in the beginning of the year. 
So there, there's a little bit of cycles that we try to build around in terms of hiring, but then obviously there's needs that come up and, and you got to respond to it. That does take a lot of the time. I think the one thing that I struggle with to spend as much time as I should is the client value delivery. That's probably today's big focus is pushing and saying, hey, we've acquired a number of customers, but if I go back and especially the ones that have been with us for a number of years, you realize that they've been using you for this one or two use case for all these years, but now you've expanded to manage 10, 15 different use cases. So there's so much opportunity to go back and help them. Whether or not it's directly tied to selling another product and getting more revenue, but just even the way they could engage with your existing product and get more value out of it, that'll help keep their LTV or keep their Stop them from churning subscription well, yeah. extending. Yeah, reduce the churn, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think that's the the big thing. It, you know, what was the, I know it's you know roughly like 30% you should be spending your time at least at the minimum with the customers because the, the opportunity is there. The opportunity is there to understand how you can improve your product, uh, how, how you can actually go to market better, how you can expand on those accounts. But more importantly, at the end of the day, your core competency as an organization is your ability to create value. And if you can expand on that capability, the stronger organization you'll be, the more value, value you'll be able to generate for your clients uh, and be able to create that capability across your organization. That's what you ultimately want to do. And if you're constantly on the front end of the deal, trying to close deals, you don't really develop that competency that you would when you're actually focused on the value delivery part. So I, I would say that's the the big takeaway of this year is to really, really focus on value delivery and get okay, good at so it. So it's like that client ongoing nurturing and making sure they take advantage of, of what they're buying from you. It, it sounds like you're doing a lot of different things, like being a, the media, I'm on the podcast talking guy, then you're helping with the hiring. I have no doubt you're, you're making key decisions on, on who to bring into the team. And then it sounds like you're working with established clients to make sure they see and, and extract the value from you know what they're buying from you. So that, those are quite different, very interconnected uh, roles, but very holistic too. It gives you a good sense of the front end, the middle and the back end of, of your company. So uh, that's interesting. You know, Kisan, just to kind of wrap it up, where are we going with this business? It's kind of funny to talk to a merger and acquisition guy and not talk about one day selling your own company. Is that sort of something you thought about? Or the other side of the fence, buying other companies to bring in to your, your own organization to expand that way? Yeah, there. I mean, all those are ideas that are there that become more and more interesting to actually pursue. I think we're in a unique spot because today we're still... We don't have any outside shareholders, so we're still tightly held company, private, and I think there's a unique opportunity because I, I leverage it in terms of hey, this gives us much greater focus on the customer. We don't weigh our decision. We don't have a board and shareholders that influence our decisions. It's focused on the customer, and I'm I'm, I'm interested in in seeing how the, our our structure can evolve to build the equity model to incentivize the team in the company and be able to continue growing with them in that same capacity. So I, I, I think we still got a long view on this stuff. I'm, I'm old, but not that old. So I got at least another 10, 20 years to run at this. And I, I've, I've seen that before, Yara. I don't know if you ever talked to other founders about it, but if you look at like this business life cycle, everybody's so fixated on getting up within this like zero to five year window and getting a big exit or IPO or, or whatever. But then when you look at the real reality, these the real big successes didn't blow up that fast. I mean, granted, there's so many Ubers out there, but when you look at a general, uh, you know, the the median of these organizations, we're talking about like a 20 year, you know, to really see that big success. And if you look at these venture capital funding models, I mean, a lot of these founders are pushed to exit in year 10, and then velocity really kicks in, and you see massive amounts of growth that happens from year 10 to 20. And they're on the sideline or working on the next venture, looking back at all that growth happening, you know, that little, you know, damn, that could have been, could have been part of that ride. That's the one thing I noticed, you know, we we're hitting about 10 years and we had a lot of these struggles because of the industry thought, Hey, we built the technology too early and whatnot. Um, so I, I think we're, we're hanging on and we're starting to see that things are really aligning and getting some more tailwind. You know, we want to really keep building off of it. 
And then I, I think the industry itself is now starting to shift in our favor where we're finally realizing we shouldn't be doing billion dollar deals in Excel. But the now there's like, here's all this emerging AI stuff. You, you know, if you look at all the trend with GPT-3 and things like that, it's like, well, a lot of this stuff applies really well to M&A. We can build some cool tools to summarize information and get the information you need quickly when you have massive, massive amounts of data you're trying to analyze on a complex deal to understand the risk and the opportunities in it. So I think there's just tons and tons of opportunities to keep improving and driving optimization when it comes to M&A. I do have a question actually regarding pricing models. It just come, came to me with the nature of what you guys do. I'm looking at it right now. Your, your sort of starting point is $1,000 per month billed annually. So it's you know like a, a, a $12,000 kind of setup. I, I think about though the, the actual M&A process doesn't lend itself, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, to we're going to need this for 10 years unless we're actually an M&A firm that constantly, or a bank maybe that constantly does refinancing. But if I'm just one, like if I'm the person selling my company, I'm probably going to sell one company every 10 years at most. Uh, so it, is it your customer base more like the, the M&A firms and banks and, and then they just bring in the person who's selling the company for the purposes of that one deal, but then that person exits? Is that kind of the typical scenario? We do have a good portion of our business that come from banks or even directly from the client that are selling. And that's where we have those listed prices as single room. I mean, we're trying to build a workflow to let them just sign up on their own because there's not a lot to it. We can essentially provide templates and the workflows for them to do it themselves. Our outbound efforts, when we think of enterprise sales, is geared towards corporations and we put them in three buckets. You have occasional acquires. They might buy zero to one company a year. And then you have uh, frequent acquires that they may buy a regular two to 10 companies a year. And then you have serial acquires, which you can think of the, the Apple and the Googles, Microsoft, Cisco. And when we look at that, that's where we really look at our space. Typically, it's the frequent acquires. They're one to 10 billion market cap companies that do three or more deals a year that have a dedicated corporate development team, about three to seven people that drive the M&A activity for the organization. That's our prime target. And then in addition to that, our private equity-backed roll-ups. So there's a lot of uh, investments made in organizations to roll-up industries. Think of specialized clinics, dental practices. We have a big auto body shop, private schools, security agencies. A lot of those fragmented industries that are getting rolled up, those are great clients for us. We love talking to them because to be able to really build workflows that are rinse and repeat, when their acquisition strategy is very much similar, it's a great opportunity to create value. Mm, okay, that that helps me get my head around your 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 target audience and your pricing model. Now that I think about it, yeah, one big organization could be acquiring twenty companies a year. You don't necessarily hear about them all. It's it's funny because of doing this podcast, I'm always on TechCrunch, and I'm like this company acquired by Facebook. And it, it wasn't ever a big deal, but it was it's there on TechCrunch. And you realize that's actually happening every day, really, and multiple times a day if you look at, across the industry. So I can see, especially if the prior way of doing things was like Excel sheets and things like that, you really are uh, just naturally digitizing uh, the workflow of, of an industry that probably didn't have it until you guys came along, right? So I can see the need. Yeah, really nice. Anything else you want to throw in, uh, Kisan, before we, we wrap up the interview? I, I think we, we touched on a lot of stuff. I, I kind of mentioned our, our goal is, one, get more exposure to the, the industry because I think there's a lot of roles in M&A beyond investment banking. So I always encourage folks to look at the website content and get a sense of that. And then just the people. At the end of the day, you know, M&A has got to change and be more focused about the actual people it impacts and uh, when you align around the people, you'll result in a lot more value that's created from these transactions. And where do we find you? Obviously, dealroom.net for the, the platform itself and mascience.com for the education, the media arm, the podcast. Anywhere else you want to send people to? LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, just K-I-S-O-N Patel. And I'm happy to connect with folks on there. I'm guessing anyone who's in M&A or maybe even someone who's thinking of selling a large company would you would you be open to hearing from them does that make sense or i can talk about m&a nonstop. <laughs> i don't have a problem i'll hit the record button we'll make a podcast out of it and uh 
No, I'm, I'm happy. I love talking shop. I'm, I'm welcome the opportunity to get involved, answer questions. We host a lot of roundtable events, summits, things of that sort. So yeah, absolutely happy to talk to anybody about all things M&A. All right, well, the next time I'm selling my company, I will definitely remember your name, Keyson. So just for the case of having a conversation. So you use, have you gone through it before, the sale process? Only for small you know, website businesses, you know, never like something where the diligence has been extensive. And yeah, I, I know it's, it can be stressful, but I totally understand the need for, you know, as a minimum broker or ideally like a full-blown, you know, firm managing things. So yeah. Yeah, I'll, we'll be ready for you. We'll have pl- plenty of resources to help you out. Awesome. Nice to talk to you, Kisan. Keep up the good work. Hey, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kisan. Uh, it was a topic I haven't really covered much, so I'm glad we got to spend the first half of the interview just asking some basic questions about how merger and acquisition works, how he even makes money, like what does an M&A consultant specialist uh, do to earn the 10% or whatever the fee might be as part of the deal, and just a few of the insights and unique parts of the industry that I wasn't aware of. And that was, I think, very, very interesting. And then, as typical for this podcast, we got to hear a SaaS startup story, which is also interesting. A bootstrapped one, though, not a venture capital-backed one. And, you know, it's it's obviously a company that's succeeding and growing. They're hiring a lot. And they've found their niche and, and really scaling within that space of controlling and digitizing the deal flow management process. So great niche to be in an obvious extension of what Kisan was doing with merger and acquisition in the first 10 years of his life in that space. And now this is the second 10 years as well. And like I said earlier, really enjoyed hearing him talk about content as such a key growth tool, a marketing process, which he called like having a media company within your, your startup. So I thought that was really insightful way to say that. If you enjoyed this episode and you think any of your friends or family or colleagues would benefit from hearing Keysound's story, please share this episode with them. This is episode number 23 of Vested Capital. They can find that by just Googling Vested Capital or go to the website for this uh, podcast. It's at yaro.blog. That's yaro.blog. Look for the podcast tab there and you'll find it. It's also available on all the usual channels. So Spotify, Apple iTunes, Amazon, Google Podcast Player. Just search for Vested Capital or my name, Yaro, Y-A-R-O, and you should find the show. And when you're there, if you have it open on your phone, hit that subscribe or plus or follow button so you get all the episodes as soon as I release them, plus access to the full back catalog of amazing interviews I've done with guests like Kisan. If capital and cash flow are topics interesting to you or anyone you know, send them to Vested Capital. All right, that's it. My name is Yarrow, and I'll talk to you on the very next episode. Bye-bye.